Well, if you've been around over the last few weeks, you'll know that we are looking at a number of biblical examples of what God can accomplish over a 40-day period. It's like there's this recurring theme in the Bible of God setting aside 40 days with his people at key moments of transition where he works on them and instructs them for the next phase. If you remember, we started by looking at the 40 days that Jesus spent with his disciples between his resurrection and his ascension and how during that time the disciples moved from a place of fear to peace from doubt to faith, from shame to restoration. Then we looked at the story of Moses and his 40-day encounter with God on Mount Sinai and saw how encountering God is both how we transition and also what we are transitioning towards. Last week, we took a small step back and explored what God is saying to us prophetically during this time. Ginny, if you recall, exhorted us not to go back to how things were before, but to be in faith and press into what God has for us next. And in this whole time of waiting, we're to consecrate ourselves. We're to get ready. We're to prepare ourselves in anticipation of what's to come. Now, building on all of this, what we're going to do today is return to the people of Israel in the wilderness At the point where we join the story in Numbers chapter 13, that the people of God have moved on from Mount Sinai to the desert of Paran, and they've come to the brink of the land which God has promised to give them. Moses sends spies into the land for 40 days of reconnaissance, and as we're going to see, when they return, there is both good news and bad news, which prompts the question, Will they respond with fear or with faith? Now, as we read this whole account of what happened, I want you to try and keep in mind what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 about this story. He says, These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So there's something here that we desperately need to pay attention to. This is an example for us. This is a warning we really do need to heed. The question facing God's people then is very much the question facing us today. As we anticipate what lies ahead, all the opportunities that God has for us in the coming months, how are we going to respond Will it be with fear or with faith? Let's dive into the story, picking up in Numbers 13, verse 1. Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Then continuing at verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. 
We went into the land to which he sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people, they're stronger than we. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt, or in this desert! Why is the Lord bringing us to this land, only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long? Will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people, and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. <coughs> if you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, 
Not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Now, did you spot the contrast running all through that story between fear and faith? Somehow, Joshua and Caleb, they find a way to look into the future with courage and with faith, despite the very real threats that were lying ahead of them. And we'll return a little later on to see what we can learn from their example. But the overwhelming emotion running through this story is fear, isn't it? And, let's be honest, for some pretty good reasons. Verse 28, the people living there are powerful and their towns are large and fortified. Verse 32, the land will devour anyone who goes to live there. Verse 33, all the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. Chapter 14, verse 3, our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. These are legitimate fears. Faced with those reports, it's understandable that the people were pretty shaken. And for us today, as we perhaps consider moving forward into an uncertain future, I suggest it's understandable that we would be ever so slightly shaky too. I mean, the last 12 months, they've exposed any number of fears, haven't they? Whether it's to do with our physical or our mental health, our education, our employment, our finances, not to mention the fear of being confronted with the reality of death. It's like we have lost the capacity to control our destiny that we thought we had. The reality is, never actually were in control. It was all a massive delusion. But this sudden awareness of our lack of being controlled is pretty frightening, isn't it? And as we now consider the next few months and all the changes we're going to have to navigate, how we're going to adapt and change our routines all over again, how we're going to overcome the social awkwardness of being with other people after all this time, all the new plans we're suddenly going to have to make with the nagging fear in the back of our minds that we might well be left with another huge wave of disappointment if things change and they all come to nothing. As we grapple with all of that, on the back of the year we've just had, it's understandable that we'd want to play it safe, avoid risk, just return to how things were before. Just like the Israelites who pined for the days of slavery in Egypt when confronted with giants in a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And so... Although God has been teaching us some really important lessons through this time, and although there is immense opportunity ahead of us, there are some wonderful promises from God for us to lay hold of right now, there's still a strong pull in many of us to simply go back to how things were. Because, let's face it, it's known. It's safe. It's where we feel most secure. 
But there's a haunting line in Numbers 14 that stops us in our tracks. It's a verse that absolutely nails us. The people, if you remember, are adamant. They want to turn around and retrace their steps back through the wilderness. And to be fair, the fear driving all of this, as we've seen, seems pretty legitimate. Until Joshua and Caleb hit them between the eyes with this line. Verse 9. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying to rebel against God and to be afraid of the people is one and the same thing. To be scared of the giants in the land when God says go into the land is to rebel against God. In other words, fear and rebellion are not two different things. No, they are one and the same. And just in case you're thinking that's just Joshua and Caleb being a bit over the top, here's God's take on it. Verse 23. They will never even see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have treated me with contempt will ever see it. What Joshua and Caleb call rebellion against God, God himself calls treating him with contempt. Which begs two questions. First of all, why on earth is this such a big deal? What is it about fear that causes us to effectively rebel against God and treat him with contempt? And then secondly, if this really is the case, how do we replace fear with courageous faith? Well, let's look at each of those questions in turn. Number one, why is fear so serious? Well, first and foremost, I suggest it's because fear treats God as too small. You know, I think a lot of the time, our fears tend to surround things that we turn to for security. Or to put it another way, fear often surrounds our idols, the things we look to instead of God. Ultimately then, fear is a kind of mistrust of God. It's like we cling to all these other things because deep down we believe that if we clung completely to God, well, he would just end up letting us down. If we clung completely to God, if he was our only security, then at the end of the day, he wouldn't come through for us. And so as a result, we look to other things, our own ability to fix things ourselves, our performance, our looks, having enough money to be secure, having that relationship, having the clothes or the house, the possessions to prove to others that we have really made it. We cling to all those other things for dear life, thinking that without them, we're doomed. And when anything dares to threaten them, well, we're fearful. And the reason we're afraid is because we have given more weight to those other things than to God. And in so doing, we're treating him with contempt. You see... When we're afraid of being without those other things, 
what we're really saying is God is smaller than this, that this thing is bigger, that this is more than God could ever handle, which is crazy when you think about it. As verse 21 puts it, the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory. It's like if we would just open our eyes and see a glimpse of God's glory, if we saw how he fills the whole earth, then we surely wouldn't be afraid to the degree we are. In other words, our greatest need is to get a bigger view of God. If you like, fear is an absence of thinking about God. Or should I say fear is an absence of thinking accurately about God. Fear is an absence of seeing his glory and having faith in him and him alone. So that's the first reason why fear is so serious. It treats God as too small. Secondly, it forgets his power to deliver and save. Straight after reminding us that the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory. God then goes on to say in verse 22, they've all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous signs I perform both in Egypt and in the wilderness. But again and again, they have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. He's saying, if you realised what a miracle it is that you got out of Egypt, why on earth would you ever be scared of going into Canaan? It's a similar logic, I think, to the one that Paul uses in Romans 8, verse 32, where he says, Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? In other words, if God brought you out of the equivalent of Egypt, or if God has given you his son, if he's already done the hard part in saving you, then how in the world is he going to desert you now? It's like having given you the car, is he going to begrudge you the keys? I mean, if he's going to give you all of this... Why would he stop now? Now look, I think perhaps one of the main reasons we can doubt this is because we have lost sight of the fact that ultimately our salvation is all down to God. You see, when we think that the reason God loves us and is taking care of us is because we're a good person or we've earned our salvation then in that moment we've lost our sense of the miraculous and our future hope shrinks down to being all about our performance. And if we believe we've got where we are on the basis of our performance or our resources, then whenever we get into a situation that we don't feel like we have the resources to handle, well, in that moment we'll chicken out, won't we? But if we believe that we're saved by grace and it's a miraculous thing, then we're able to say that if God brought me this far, then why can't he help me do this? So you know what? I'm going to obey. I mean, if he brought me out of Egypt, for goodness sake, he's certainly going to get me safely into the equivalent of Canaan. And just to say, 
but wave aside really if we are afraid of failure it's surely a telltale sign that we've made it all about our performance because when we're assured of God's love for us and his grace and his faithfulness and his unfailing commitment to us then even if we do fail we know that doesn't affect how he views us you see if Jesus is my security then I am liberated from the worry of failure and I am free to make courageous decisions so there you have it two reasons why fear is such an affront to God it makes him too small and it forgets his saving work let's finish off by very quickly tackling the second question namely how then do we replace fear with faith well to put it simply the difference between Joshua and Caleb and the rest of the spies I think was where they chose to look in other words when there are giants looming on the horizon where the future looks scary where we could be tempted to shrink back in fear what we need to do is get our focus right really to press forward in faith we need to be captured by the right vision first of all we need to look back now just to be clear there's a right way to look back and also a wrong way if you remember the Israelites they looked back through rose-tinted spectacles and they saw Egypt as being the land flowing with milk and honey that's the wrong way to look back and you know what I think this remains a very real temptation for us today you see when things get scary or uncertain it's natural to want to go back to what we know might be slipping back into familiar sins or habits as a way of consoling yourself or it could simply be wanting everything to return to how things were pre-covid where actually God is opening up new opportunities for us that require developing a whole range of new habits and new ways of doing things what the Israelites actually needed to look back and see was that returning to their old life of slavery was not an option and that God had set them free for something way way better and we need to do the same I don't know perhaps you need to repent of clinging on to things for security that are not God or maybe it's a case of resolving right now that you're going to embrace uncertainty and follow God into the unknown don't get me wrong not saying everything about life before Covid was awful and we need to throw it all out but I would encourage you over the next week to set aside a bit of time to reflect honestly on what aspects of your old life you don't want to go back to so first of all look back secondly look around God's assessment of the Israelites really couldn't have been a whole lot more damning he says they've all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous signs I perform both in Egypt and in the wilderness but again and again they've tested me by refusing to listen to my voice seems unthinkable doesn't it that 
having seen God lead them out of Egypt in such extraordinary circumstances, splitting the Red Sea, obliterating the Egyptian army, providing manna and quail, guiding them with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, giving them his very presence among them. Instead of being thankful, they moaned, they grumbled, and they rebelled. But you know what? I think we can be the same, can't we? We can be so consumed by our current situation that we end up losing sight of the many blessings of God all around us. Once again, I want to encourage you this week to take the time to look around, to open your eyes, to see the many blessings of God in your own life and the lives of others. And don't just stop at that. Turn it back to him in thankfulness. So look back, look around. Thirdly, then look forward with faith. Let's be real. There are going to be any number of challenges ahead of us, aren't there? But also some pretty wonderful opportunities. It's going to be costly. It's going to be painful. But the future that God is preparing for us will ultimately be worth it. Remember back a year to the word that Rich brought about the lake being drained. The, the purpose was to cleanse it so fresh water would come teeming with life. Esther Lee shared a prophetic word recently about God setting new boundary lines for us as a church, requiring us to build in a different way. Last week, Ginny spoke in terms of God sending revival. It's coming closer, which is all well and good. But I think probably there's a little bit of cynicism in all of us. What's more, some of us are carrying so much disappointment from the past that it's hard to muster up the faith needed to advance. But as we've seen, the key to getting the courage to move forward is to get a bigger view of God. As Joshua and Caleb exhorted the people, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So once again, so over the next week, I'd like to invite you to pray for what's to come. Won't you dream? Won't you use your imagination? Won't you ask big, be open to the prophetic? And if you find that hard, why don't you confess it to God? Let him know where you're fearful, where you're lacking faith, where you're overwhelmed with worry, and then invite him to help you trust him. And then fourthly, and finally, above all else, look to Jesus. It's interesting to note that Jesus and Joshua are the same name. They're different ways of translating the Hebrew word for saviour. And in many respects, Joshua 
was the forerunner of Jesus. He was a saviour, a leader in their midst, bearing the first fruits of the future. Tragically, though, God's people didn't listen to Joshua. They feared the giants more than they trusted their Jesus. They turned back from the Lord's will for them and an entire generation ended up perishing in the wilderness. How about you? What or who will you look to? I want to urge you to look to Jesus. He has gone through death and come back bearing the first fruits of new creation life. However frightening the future looks, with him we can move forwards, trusting that the best really is yet to come. And really, in a nutshell, that's what these 40 days are all about. They're basically an invitation to draw nearer to Jesus. My appeal to you would be, do not pass up the opportunity. Won't you make the most of this time and press into him?